Welcome to another episode of Phobia, a podcast on perception, images, and visual media, all from a communication perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Gordon Kuhnfield. I'm an associate professor of communication at Villanova University. And I am coming at you with another installment in the series, Why We Read. Basically, a series of extended conversations between Dr. Kathleen Oswald and myself about the text we use in our teaching and research on visual communication. We are going to explore the context. We are going to engage the arguments and we're going to talk about their value for understanding visual communication. Do you know that by some estimates we're exposed to as many as 5,000 advertisements? every day they are using images not only to talk to us but to get us to view the world in a very specific way in this episode we focus on the grammar at work in this conversation and the way that that grammar structures images and reflects those interests so sit yourself back and get ready to focus on Chris and Van Leeuwen's reading images the grammar of visual design it's probably no surprise that like a lot of different scholars who study images they come to it through language but unlike Bart who takes a Saussurean linguistic approach, these guys uh, seem to do something that's more useful to me. Instead of saying, well, all sign systems work like a language, therefore, if we explain something adequately with respect to language, we've explained something about all sign systems. And that's in part why the Saussurean semiotic kind of approach to, uh, to images has been so popular, because it's really reductive. But what I like about Crescent Van Leeuwen is they ask, well, what do we know about language that we could apply to images and test it out and see if it works the same or to what extent it's different? And I like that approach in this book. That, and it's got like my favorite quote, which I can never find when I go back to the book. But that point that uh, images represent choices and choices are charged with meaning. I really like that. And uh, I usually use this as a way to say there is no such thing as reading too much into an image. In fact, the chances are really good that even after you've given it your best shot, you still will not have read enough into that image, right? Yeah, I know for me, one of the things I like best about this chapter as as a reading in visual communication is towards the end of the chapter, they've got a diagram that they kind of put out there, which is a way to think about how to use all these terms after the chapter is over to read an image differently. And then they go ahead and they break down all of the keywords in pretty good detail. And so then it's a really good resource for students to be able to look at an image in this way and kind of identify some of those um, elements of the visual grammar in an image. So let's talk a little bit about why they begin with the children's illustration and shapes and lines and colors. Because if you go no further than that in this chapter, you're going to think this is pretty weird stuff. Talking about color, uh, using other readings, uh, thinking about echo and how culture and color are tied together and the value of pertinences, like that's a deeper dive into color than something like, oh, like red normally represents passion or anger or violence right. and blue represents calmness. And in different cultures, we have different ideas about colors. Like for instance, 
it that seems like a like a very thin gloss that you could get maybe from a BuzzFeed listicle <laughs> um, and and doesn't really dig into the meaning. And so while they touch on some of that in here, that's not really what the deliverable of this chapter is. The right. deliverable is more understanding how that visual grammar works. If you have a, a circle, that doesn't communicate activity. That communicates wholeness. But if you draw a line between one circle and another circle, well, that line indicates some sort of relationship, some sort of vector that's connecting them, some sort of actions going on now. And I like, so I, I like that part of the analysis uh, of the of the diagrams because they help us see how we create these ideas within the semiotic systems available to us. Um, so we do it in language with subjects, verbs, objects, prepositions, and we do it in images by distinguishing foreground and background, locative situations, action, a vector of action taking place, connecting two targets. Circles and lines and the graphs are all like C-spot run level. But when they get to the photos, like that's where it gets really interesting. Yeah, and being able to break out the contextual relationship between um, the various things that are going on in an image, whether it's a diagram or like a visual list, like a taxonomy, or if it's, uh, for instance, some of the paintings they're talking about where you can identify these actors and the vectors aren't necessarily as discrete as an arrow, but you can definitely see a line of movement um, like as people are charging up onto a beach or something. Right, right. Uh, can I read you one of my favorite quotes? Uh, you can. This is on page 47, and it's at the end of the paragraph, the last paragraph before the next section heading on participants. Um, and in the paragraph, they're talking about how visual structures have not, we haven't paid enough attention to visual structure. We've paid a lot of attention to content and semantic content, but not enough to how images are, how photographs are uh, structured. And that's the point that they're making here. Visual structures do not simply reproduce the structures of reality. On the contrary, they produce images of reality which are bound up with the interests of the social institutions within which the images are produced, circulated, and read. They are ideological. Visual structures are never merely formal. They have a deeply important semantic dimension. That is like, there's a lot going on there, right? So basically they're saying it's not reproducing reality, but creating meaningful propositions by means of visual syntax. Um, so thinking about that, that's basically a way of saying it's making an argument that right. images make arguments there. And it makes me think of some of the other things that I like to focus on that seem pretty benign, but actually are ideological. Uh, one of those things being maps. Um, maps often make arguments. They seem like a reflection of reality, but really that's an ideological interpretation of reality that's accomplished visually. Yeah, yeah, right. It represents a set of choices. They talk about the three metafunctions of semiotic systems. And I think that's pertinent to what you were to, to the examples that you were you were just giving. The ideational metafunction means that the semiotic system is adequate to the universe of objects 
and their relations between them. The interpersonal metafunction, the semiotic system is adequately able to represent the social relationships as they exist within that culture. And then the textual metafunction, that there has to be internal and external coherence in a semiotic system. I think all of that's kind of interesting and it explains how images as, especially advertising images, as systems of social communication perform these different ideological functions, just like the SEPTA map shows you how to get along uh, around the city on public transit, but it doesn't show you how to walk from one place to another, that a culture systems of social communication also make choices about what is visible and what is not visible, what matters and what doesn't matter, what you need to know and what you don't need to know, what you can and should think about and what we would prefer you not to think about, like the Aboriginals and the British in the uh, example that they start with. Yeah, and that's the, where that stands out the most to me is around page 56, when they are talking about the meaning of uh, geometrical shapes, um, they're basically saying, yeah, part of it is coming from the properties of shapes or the values that we give shapes, but there are also those common qualities that we detect. Uh, they say there are common qualities we may detect in such objects in our environment as we as would be circular or rectangular when abstracted to their underlying basic shape and from the values attached to these qualities in different social contexts. So I think that gets at that um, same distinction. So we've got meanings that we associate with shapes that derive from the properties of the shapes themselves, like a line is straight. If somebody's on the straight and narrow, then we're going to associate that with that's really good. Um, but if somebody's a straight man is the example they use and they're not really a fun person to hang out with, or you would call somebody a square, right? Those are things that we ascribe qualities about people, for instance, to, but it's also a quality of the shape. But then they're saying, hey, there's other things in our environment that we're going to then look at that shape and we're going to come up with like our own association. So rather than just leveraging a shape to suggest something, we're going to see shapes. And because of that cultural interplay, um, we are going to assume certain things or take a certain impression from the shapes. Those shapes take on meaning as they circulate within a system of social communication. Uh, and then we start recognizing those same shapes or the same qualities or properties in other new things. And we encounter them, not just as they are in the world, but through this sort of filter of associations, idiosyncratic associations, like my own personal biological experience, as well as shared associations like we've encountered in media, for example. And then kind of coming off of that, one of the things they talk about is diagrams specifically, which a diagram seems like it's a scientific or technical way to explain a reality of some kind. Um, but then what the authors are suggesting is that diagrams aren't just coming from technical drawing, that they also come from art. Uh, and that the cultural meanings and associations help the viewer understand something. So if you wanted to, in a technical drawing, suggest something is an organic process, you'd be more likely to use a curved line um, to suggest that or take right. some element from nature to indicate that, oh, this is part of the natural environment kind of coming into this. 
where if it was something that was more discrete, you might put that inside of a square or a rectangular shape. But maybe if it's user input, you would use something with rounded edges to suggest that that was, you know, less under man's control or a system's <laughs> control. Their analysis of these shapes and images is, uh, or not shapes and images, but shapes and lines, is a way to come back then to the diagram that they start with about the British and the Aboriginals. That same sort of uh, event that is happening between two squares and a line is happening between these two groups of people. They're grouped together. That causes them to be a shape or a noun. Um, and then the line of action between them becomes the, the vector that connects these two shapes, right? British had guns. And although the British aren't shooting with their guns at that moment, uh, the, the fact of having the gun and the aggression of it is what, uh, it, what produces this line of connection as well as their eyesight, right? Yeah, I mean, really, if you look in that image, the thing that stands out the furthest is the gun. Like, it's it's leading the way. Like, it's parting the scene. So, what are some of the things that you talk about when you talk about this in class? So, I start off with saying, basically, um, that we've got visual narrative everywhere. And I like to focus on the ways that visuals can do things for us in ways that language cannot. And ultimately, I think images and words together intentionally is going to have a much more outstanding effect on making an argument, informing, educating, getting someone to take your perspective than either images or words alone. However, one of the examples I like to use so much is IKEA directions for building <laughs> furniture because these contain no words because right. IKEA sells products that need to be assembled and they sell them all around the world. So rather than print directions in you know many, many languages, as you might get when you buy something and there's a brochure or a manual and you go to start reading it like this is a thousand pages long and really only three pages are in English because three pages are in every language. Ikea cuts down on this by just giving you like one folded up sheet of paper that consists of the images of the parts, how to lay them out, and often shows a user like this kind of looks like a chalk man, you know, like the chalk outline. He's definitely rounded to show that it's he or she is organic and kind of using that to tell a story about how to put a piece of furniture together. Uh, certainly you could write those directions entirely with words if you wanted to, it would not be as effective. At the same time, I think that if there was a way to be able to, for instance, pull up online the images with maybe a couple of words in your language of instructions, it would make them even easier to use. Um, but I think they have a really great way of using the images alone to tell a story about how to do something. By turning it into a story featuring this character who is trying to do what you're trying to do, it allows you to sort of get closer. The images do a better job of translating from action to action than words do. Yeah. They're, and they use like a comic frame almost sometimes with like uh, panels, right? So there'll yep. be panels in each instruction. You can visually follow like, okay, this is a discrete uh, step because it's enclosed in a box. And then you go to the right. next box. 
One of the things I really like about that example is that that is actually what we're trying to do with images. Think of them as really complicated pieces of furniture. And the things that we're reading about in Chris and Van Leeuwen are the instructions for how to take them back apart again. We're trying to see better as best we can. One of the other things that I like about this piece is this idea that we can use these terms to understand visual narrative and images. We can use, um, you know, all of these various tools that they kind of put out at our disposal, which of course, there are a lot of them. And this is a complicated <laughs> process. And this is probably a chapter you want to read more than once if you're going to talk about it uh, in any level of detail. But once you understand those terms and you start seeing vectors and you see actors and reactors and images, when you create your own images, even if those images are a slide show that you make, right, or like a PowerPoint, a card deck, whatever they call it uh, nowadays in the business world, you can be more intentional with the types of images you use using this visual grammar as a starting point for creating effective images. So this isn't just, oh, like, let me look at an image and take it apart and understand what's happening. This will give you a, a level of understanding and the tools to think about creating images intentionally to make an argument, to get someone to see from your perspective, to inform more effectively and really be intentional with the choices you're making when you try and persuade or inform visually. At the level of perception, we are engaging in what is actually a cultural act of recognition. So we're not just perceiving the thing. We're not just perceiving the image. We are recognizing the image. And sometimes that can be really great. Uh, at other times, it can cause us to missee and to misinterpret things. And I think that's one of the things or one of the challenges that we face in trying to understand visual communication is that uh, we're not just opening our eyes and letting the world flood in, but we still bring that same kind of assumption to images. I open my eyes and I see the image. You know, what's the problem? What, where's the complication going on here? And I think that's where the real battle for uh, like trying to strategically understand how images are put together uh, gets, gets fought. And then, you know, we spent a semester trying to unlearn some of that stuff that we spent a lifetime getting in our head. So can I tell you about a, one example that I like to use in class? Yes. I always conclude with this image. The reason I do that is because I want you to bracket out everything you know about this image, right? It's like widely reproduced, the very embodiment of an iconic photograph. And for those who can't see it, this is the photograph uh, that's usually called the kissing sailor or the VJ day photograph. It is sort of the cultural meaning of this message makes it difficult to see what's really happening here. So if we look at this image and we break it down the way Cress and Van Loon, we would say, okay, who's the, what's the vector? What's the action happening here? So we've got two kinds of action processes or one action process and a reaction process. The sailor has grabbed the woman and is kissing her, right? Maybe something like that. So there's the there's one vector. And then the reaction process is all of the people around, all those people are looking at the scene and they're responding to it, which I 
think is interesting because they reflect a kind of joy about the war ending, obviously, or about the Japanese part of it ending. So they're, they're, this joy, though, gets expressed here as joy and approval for what's happening in front of them. Where this gets really interesting is if we start to pay attention to her body and what she does in response. She's off balance. So this is probably not good, right? She's trying to steady herself. She's trying to keep her skirt from flying up, you know, so she she's she's trying to remain decently composed. Her arm is trying to push back. What what's really obvious when we begin to take this photograph apart visually based on what we've learned from Crescent Van Leeuwen is that this is not like a romantic expression of consensual joy and love. It's a sexual assault, right? He is physically assaulting this woman and forcing a kiss on on her. And this would get him arrested if it happened, you know, like in the library or in, at school or something, right? But in this case, it, uh, it it's up on in everybody's dorm room. It's up all over the place. There are copies of this uh, that, that I, large sculpture sized copies of this at various places uh, around the United States. And it enshrines this assault, which I think we have learned not to notice. Well, I think the whole point of this image, right, is not you're not the woman in this image. You're never the woman in this image, uh, even as a person looking at this in, you know, a history book or something like, and it would be used very uncritically as a, this is the celebration, right, of right. the conclusion of the war. It's a wrestling move. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but, but this is, I think, a great example because it explains why we have the same problem looking at photographs that we have when we talk about looking at the world. We sit and look at photographs and we think like, well, it's pretty obvious what's going on there. The sailors kissing the nurse. This is like the VJ day. This means like romance and victory for, uh, over and the end of the war. This is all good stuff. What could be the problem here? But in fact, that is a function of not seeing what is happening right in front of you. And that is why I think uh, readings like this one by Crescent Van Leeuwen are so valuable because they cause us to slow seeing down. When seeing happens at the speed of recognition, then we are going to fail to see. It just makes me mad. It makes me mad too. To have been fooled by it so long is really frustrating um, especially when you realize that there are so many images that you see and you remember it and what you kind of keep in your mind of the image is there, but the reality of the image is there's a lot more and that's ideology in a way, right? right. The production of common sense and the maintenance of power uh, over time to some folks' advantage and you know to the disadvantage of others. Amen. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Let's Thank do it you. again. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. <laughs> and while we're fighting to outthink one another, let me thank you for listening to this podcast. You can check us out on an Apple podcast on Spotify. I look forward to focusing with you again.